0: How do you best comfort someone who is suffering, someone who in fact might be dying, someone who is stuck in a situation that looks hopeless? I think there is great opportunity to do that with a lot of people around you. Now, here are some things that I hear commonly, and there are many more, but I'll just mention a few. Uh, you could say to that person who is stuck in a situation that looks hopeless, or or who needs comfort in suffering or even dying, you could say, hang in there. You could say, everything is going to be okay. You could say, and many people do, many Christians, well-meaning Christians, although they're really not interpreting this verse in the right way, God won't give you more than you can handle. Or something like this, you just have to put the past behind you and find something better in your future. Or something that I hear from a lot of leaders in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, you or we will get through this. Now, try those sayings on the two men that we read about just a few minutes ago that were on either side of Jesus hung on two crosses. Please don't say to the two men on the crosses, hang in there, okay? Let me just walk you through this story. I think it's got a lot to say to us. Then the first question that, that probably should come up in your mind, why This story. Why is this story even in the Bible? Two relatively minor players. I say that because we don't even know their names, at least from what's written in the Bible. And yet, it's a major story. Do you realize there is more written about the two thieves on the cross than there is written about Joseph of Arimathea? And so, I want to walk you through this story. Even if, as it was read just a few moments ago, make some comments and then come back to the time of taking the Lord's Supper together. Begin with verse 32. I hope you're following along. Luke recorded these words. Two others who were criminals were led away to be be put to death with him. Let me ask you to respond to that. Respond to people today with Again, the greatest encouragement. And and in order to give the greatest encouragement, you're going to have to meet people at the point of their greatest need. What was the greatest need of these two men? These two thieves. What is the greatest need of people around us? What is the greatest need that you have? I want to quote... D.A. Carson, I've used this quote before, but I think it is absolutely essential. It would be something that an end-of-the-life issue, you would come to this. And even today, uh, this is a great quote for all of us. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, He would have sent an economist. If He had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, He would have sent us a comedian or an actor. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, He would have sent us a politician. If He had perceived that our greatest need was health, He would have sent us a doctor. But, God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from Him, our profound rebellion, our death, and He sent A Savior. Several things that pop out of this passage of Scripture to me, I hope they do to you. First thing that I want to say is both of these men started out in the same situation, and I want to bring this home to us, so are we stuck in the same situation without Christ. Really, the question is, are we so different from these two thieves on the cross? I have a feeling that when the average Christian reads this story, we normally think of these two men as worse than we are. Without Christ, aren't we all criminals, malefactors, King James says, deserving of punishment? I remind you that Paul said this in Romans 3.23 and 6.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Listen, folks, there is a greater pandemic throughout the world than the coronavirus, and it's called sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we go on in 623, Paul says there, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, again, let's go back. We know little about these two men. We don't know their names. By the way, parenthetically, if you look it up, they were given names by some writings that are extra biblical. I doubt that you're going to go to those. They are writings found in the Catholic scriptures, but they are not found in the canon of Scripture that we hold to be inspired. So, the Bible doesn't tell us their names, but we do know what they were and what they did. They were both, let me use several words, thieves, robbers, again the King James, I love this word, malefactors. They were sinners, they were transgressors. They were both receiving exactly what they deserved. Both were nailed to a cross so close to Jesus that they could almost touch Him. They could see Him, and they could hear Him. Later on, both of these men would have their legs broken to speed their death. And when they died, their bodies would be taken and unceremoniously thrown onto a garbage heap that, by the way, was called again, Gehenna, just outside of Jerusalem, where their bodies would be eaten by worms and burned with fire. And so I wonder, did these men really feel the weight of their helplessness, of their hopeless situation? And isn't this a picture of lost people without Christ? Do you know who these two men remind me of? They remind me of me before Christ. Their condition is a picture of my spiritual condition, my own sinfulness and utter helplessness and my absolute hopelessness without Jesus Christ. I was listening to a podcast this last week. It was one on leadership, how to lead in this crisis. And one of the principles that popped out to me during listening to that podcast was this. And, 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 and this person said that this is what a leader needs to do. Confront brutal facts. People can handle bad news better than they can handle no news, okay? Okay. That being said, then, we need to confront not only these two men beside Jesus with brutal facts, but maybe we need to be honest, lovingly honest with the brutal facts and confront the reality that all of us, that they were, but all of us are going to die. We need to confront the delusion of human independence the the delusion of self-sufficiency, that we are ultimately in control of our own environment. The brutal facts were that they were stuck. There was no getting away. Now, they might have realized the reality of one facet of their situation, the grave. The fact that physical death was coming. We need to face that fact, that physical death, the grave, is coming to us all. But I don't think, at least at the very beginning, that these two men grasped the reality of the most important facet. But here's the real thing. The the tragedy is, I wonder how many people around us grasp that most important facet, that spiritual life or spiritual death awaits all of us on the other side of the grave. Do we really understand that? You know, I might just throw this in before we even get to the, to the rest of the passage. What if Jesus had answered the unrepentant thief's quest request when he said, Jesus, save yourself and save us. Do you realize that for that man, had Jesus granted that request, that physical death, the grave would not have been abolished. It would have only been delayed because this side of Jesus' return, physical death, cannot be avoided. Now, again, I, I've heard a lot of people, a lot of our leaders say these words to us during this pandemic pandemic we will make it through this. Maybe you will and maybe you won't. Again, the brutal facts. Dr. Fauci, I listen to the briefing almost every evening. He said something the other night that that caught my, my attention. He said, when he was asked about things getting back to normal, he said things if you mean things as they were before the coronavirus, they may never get back to normal. And that was shocking. But folks, we don't realize the reality of this. Let's, at least those of us who know spiritual realities, think about this. Even if they do return to normal, and that's a good thing, it will only be temporary. There's another thing that grows out of a lot of the briefings. Life is significant. And we hear a lot about saving lives. Saving lives is significant. But saving lives, when we put it into the context of what we have in front of us today from this passage of Scripture, saving lives is in reality only delaying death. And that might be a good thing if it gives people the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what I am saying to you and to your family, perhaps gathered there, and then for you to think about for your loved ones and your neighbors and other people around you, that we all need to be prepared before reality. The brutal facts is that person talking to leaders called them before reality comes calling. There's a second thing that I see from this passage of scripture both of these men saw and heard Jesus. Now, I don't know that you've ever thought about this. Verse 33 says, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. By the way, which one was on his right and which one was on his left? You say, well, we don't know because it doesn't say it here. Well, we absolutely know from a passage like Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34. It's not on the screen, but let me just share with you what it says that Jesus, when He comes back and He sits on His throne, He's going to gather all people, all nations, and they will come before Him and He will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He's going to say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. And so I know with certainty because this man would become a believer in Jesus Christ, he was put on the right. He was in the company of the sheep. Now, that's just an aside. So let me talk about both men seeing and hearing Jesus. And there's so much more than I could say to right now about this, they saw Jesus crucified. And here, here is the shocking thing. If you've ever really studied about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and that Roman kind of death, here's what they observed. They observed that Jesus remained silent. They observed that he, he was very different They had probably seen crucifixions, and Jesus was different. He didn't try to get away. The soldiers didn't have to force his hands out, force his feet out. They didn't have to wrestle with him to get him on the cross. In fact, Jesus, they saw, almost invited the nails. Now, how could I say that? Because in John chapter 10... Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one has taken it from me. I lay my life down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So they saw these things about Jesus. This was different, and they heard him. And instead of, in most cases where those being crucified, maybe even they were doing it, instead of hearing Jesus being angry and cursing his tormentors, they heard Jesus when he was on the cross praying for them, Father, forgive them. You know, I have to wonder if God didn't use these things in the life of the repentant thief, begin to to change his heart. You see, both saw with their, with their eyes and they heard with their ears, but only one saw and heard and responded with his heart. I can imagine that repentant thief beginning, the lights beginning to go on, and maybe maybe something like this was going through his mind. Maybe what they have written about him is true. Maybe he is the Savior. That's his name, Yeshua the one who saves. Maybe he is the king as has been written over his head. Maybe, just maybe what he said is true that I can be forgiven. There's a third thing that jumps out to me from this passage of Scripture. Both of these men spoke to Jesus. Now, here's the difference. We find this, whether it's veiled or whether it's open. One spoke with cynicism and the other Spoke with hope. Verse 39 One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Not only did that thief go along with the crowd, mimicking the words that he said, but do, do those words sound vaguely familiar to you? They almost mimic the words of Satan in the temptation if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, come off of that cross. Save yourself. But really, he was not concerned with Jesus. He was saying, save yourself, and here's what I really want you to do is save us. Now, what's interesting is that Matthew, not here, but in Matthew's gospel, we see that both of these men started out reviling Jesus. Let's bring this up to today. Why is it that you can have two people, maybe sitting side by side, sometimes in church, two people in the same family being raised the same way, exactly the same situation, exactly the same distance from Jesus, if you will. They see the same Savior, they hear the same words, but one sees only what can I get from Jesus, what's in it for me. But the other person sees Jesus and hears Jesus' words and hopes in him. How do you describe that? How do you explain that? Other than the multitude of clear references in other places in Scripture that tell us that it is a matter of God's sovereign choice mingled with our responsibility. One of my favorite verses, I've shared this with you before, is John six thirty seven, A verse that talks about God's sovereignty and salvation and our responsibility. All that the Father gives me will come to me. God's sovereignty. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Our responsibility. We must come. But we will never do so without divine enablement. Now, what happened to the repentant thief? Let me tell you what happened. The same thing that happens to everybody in this congregation, to you and to me, to to your children who have repented of their sins and turned by faith to Jesus Christ. You know what happened? Amazing grace is what happened. Only a moment before he was hurling abuse at Jesus and then he changed. Now, one of the things that has jumped out at me for years, I don't know if I came up with this or I read it in a book, I don't know, but it stuns me. Do you realize that in that entire crowd on that day at the crucifixion, that this repentant thief on the cross, this no-name person was the only one in the crowd who came to Jesus' defense? follow through his progress and what happened to him and how his hope grew. He came to have a holy biblical fear of God. Verse 40, the first part of that verse, but the other, the repentant thief, rebuked the unrepentant thief. Do you not fear God? Do you not respect who God is? Do you not See yourself in submission, in awe to Him, humbly opening your heart to Him? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and that man began to be wise because by the grace of God, he began to fear God. He also began to understand his guilt. Read on verses 40 and 41. You are under, this is what the repentant thief said to the unrepentant thief, you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we, he includes himself now, we justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. You will never be saved. Until, first of all, you start with a fear of God that makes your heart submissive. And until you see that you are a sinner standing before a holy God. The next thing is he recognized Jesus' innocence and his unjust suffering on the cross. Verse 41, the last part of it. This man has done nothing wrong. He declared Jesus is innocent. And then he believed who Jesus was, and he called out, he cried out for Jesus to save him. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, Jesus, he called him by name. And again, that name in the Hebrew is Yeshua, the Savior. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So this man believed that he was not only Savior, but he was the king of a kingdom. A righteous kingdom. He was coming into his kingdom. He believed that he had compassion to forgive. He didn't cry out, Hey, Jesus, remove me from my circumstances. Or, remove my circumstances from me. He cried out, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus responded to his cry. He, he always does. Verse 43, and he, Jesus, said to him, truly I say to you, and he makes the most incredible promise, not just to a no-name thief on the cross, he makes it to all of us. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, just, just a little bit about the thief's cry and Jesus' response, and, and you know this, and, and this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is why we never get tired of hearing the gospel. Every needy sinner who calls upon the Lord will be saved. Again, John. we read that a few moments ago, and we'll add to that Romans 10.13, whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will in no wise cast out. And then Paul said in Romans, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, whether that's a thief on the cross or that's us. Just look at his simple crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to be reminded that this is all it takes from us. That thief did not need eloquence. He didn't need to make sure he had every word of his prayer just right. Jesus looked, in fact, beyond his words, which were important, but he looked to his heart because his words only expressed what was in his heart. The thief didn't try to bargain, neither should we. He knew he wasn't worthy. He knew he had nothing to offer. Think about it. What could he offer Jesus at that point? I mean, his hands and his feet were nailed to a cross, so he couldn't, he couldn't work for Jesus. He couldn't run errands for Jesus. And he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus owed him nothing but judgment and that he could not lift a hand or a foot or a finger or a toe for his salvation. But when he cried out, and this is the way it always is, and those of you who are in Christ, who have grown in Christ at least for a time who are a little bit more mature, you know this, that when he came to Jesus and cried out to Jesus, he got more than he asked for. He cried out and he asked, remember me. And Jesus said, and I'm just going to expand on Jesus' words, I am going to glorify myself by saving you. I'll do more than remember you. At the moment of your death, I will take you and you will be with me in paradise. Do you realize, this is another thing about that thief that I had never seen before, I began studying about it, that he was the first New Testament believer in heaven. I've been asked before, do I believe in deathbed conversions? Yes, I certainly do. But I will usually follow that. I've been asked that question sometimes by a person that I've been sharing the gospel with who wants to wait and postpone his decision to follow Christ. In case that motivates you that deathbed conversions are real because they are, in case that motivates you to say, I'll wait, I'll be like the thief on the cross, I have to ask, which one? Did you realize that we don't know exactly when between nine o'clock and noon on Friday morning that that man became a believer in Jesus Christ? But we do know that once he became a believer in Jesus Christ, he had about three hours of, From noon to when Jesus died at 3 p.m. Friday afternoon, he was alive. He was alive past the point when Jesus died, gave up his spirit to the Father. That thief was alive and he saw Jesus die. He saw him give up his spirit and he saw the Roman soldier thrust the spear into his side. He saw the water and the blood come out i wonder what that thief was doing after he became a follower of jesus christ i don't know everything i can't tell you everything that is was in his head but i believe just like the words that we were singing a few moments ago from that great song there is a fountain the second verse probably has the thoughts of that dying thief. Listen to him again. That dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. I want you to bow your heads where you are right now. Children, you do it too. Teenagers, teenagers. Parents, moms, dads, or if you're a single watching this, I want you to bow your head and just pray with me. I know that, that most of you tuning in right now are, are, are followers of Jesus Christ. I doubt that many non-Christians are, are tuning in to hear a sermon. This sermon, perhaps. But there may be someone in your home, or there may be someone who needs to hear this message, and I want to pray for you, and I want to pray for that person And then to prepare our hearts before we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would take this simple but powerful story of two thieves on the cross, representing not only all of mankind, the guilt, and that Jesus was crucified in the midst of guilty mankind. But also, it shoots us to the picture of that day when Christ will return and he will separate the sheep from the goats. And those who have believed in Jesus Christ, not worked for him or impressed him, but simply have cried out, Oh, Jesus, remember me. I've turned away from my sins. I've turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, even tonight, I pray that you would impress upon people. You would give them the divine enablement they need to have their hearts open, that they would see and hear who Jesus is and what he has done. And now, Father, as we remember these realities of the gospel, the broken body, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you might help us with these simple elements and Lord, they're they're symbols. That's all they are. But the reality of what they represent is in our hearts, those of us who know you through Christ. Father, I pray that this would be a time where in simple obedience we obey the command of the Lord Jesus to do this in remembrance of me. May it be meaningful, even in the quietness of our own homes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.